The two buzzwords in modern football are structure and culture. Structure means exactly what it says, how teams set up to give themselves the best chance of winning. Culture, though, is different. It's vague. Let's find out what it actually means from the man who introduced it to the football vernacular. Welcome, Ray McLean. Thanks, Mike. Principal of leading teams. Now, tell me what culture means in football. Um, in its simplest term, culture means the behaviour we accept or don't within any team or organisation. So, um, whilst it's often thrown around and it's perhaps a bit misunderstood, I think running with the simpler definitions is more useful. How difficult is it to change? You're talking about a group of 40-odd players, mm. coaching group, administration. I think it relates to how um, committed the key centres of influence, we would call them, you know, the, the coach, CEO, um, key senior players, um, want to change it. So, um, you, you know, if you, if you haven't got the stomach to actually uh, address some of the behavioural things and, and make a statement about how you want to be, then ultimately you'll probably never change. But if you get that collective together and they've got a commitment to do something, it can change quite quickly. But it's, the conversation has to be really honest about how are we and how do we want to be and what are the behaviours that we're accepting as an organisation or a team that, that we shouldn't. It's, it, it's, that's the uncomplicated piece, I find. Does honest mean <clears throat> confronting? It can be, yeah. yes. Yeah. Sometimes there, you'll be in a situation with a team where we all know that we've come to accept you know, lesser standards and no-one wants to address that. They're some of the things that you have to do if you want to talk seriously about a cultural change. You've been involved at AFL level since 1995. Yep. A call from the then St Kilda General Manager, Don Hanley. Mm -hmm. Take us through that. Um, I had just really started leading teams. I'd left the Air Force and I'd contacted a couple of senior coaches in the AFL to talk about, um, you know, doing work. And Stan was the um, only one, Stan Alves was the only one who'd sort of got back to me and we conversed a bit and then Don um, organised a meeting um, for me to come to Melbourne. Take us to that um, meeting that uh, transpired. I was driving down, young consultant, with a real belief in what I, you know, in the model that I was going to elaborate on, but you were going to a meeting with Stan Alves, Trevor Barker, Kel Moore... John Beveridge and Gary Colling and as it turns out it was in a really quite a tight sort of space and they just sat there and said well you've got three hours um, and <clears throat> I think the thing I recollect most was that their attitude seemed to be a bit more what are you going to do to fix the players and in my mind um, I was thinking what are you going to do to help fix the club? Didn't they give some pretty... Um Honest feedback to Stan at the time? So after I'd been appointed, um, we, in 96, we were still not performing that well um, and you could sense the, the heat was, was uh, coming and so I'd um, felt that you'd heard enough around the place to think that um, we needed to, to get the key people together, which we did. Uh, so Andrew Plimpton... Um, uh, Stuart Trott was director of footy and the key senior players and we actually had a session where I, I guess I'd ask them, each of them individually, as we were sitting around the circle together, that, um, you know, has anyone spoken to you about Stan's performance? And they had to just answer sort of yes or no. Have you spoken to someone about Stan's performance? Um, and has anyone spoken to Stan about Stan's performance? Because Stan was there. How was Stan sitting there listening to people 
<coughs> critically appraise his job. He was annoyed and, and he wanted... Angered? A, yes, he was angered. If Stan had, you know, aggressively defended himself, well, then I, I think it would have been a waste of time. And he rang me the next day and could understand that point. Um, he, he, was, he was really supportive of what we were doing. Um, Do you think it was coincidence that the Saints then took off and, and surged up the ladder? No, I don't think it was. I think, I think it, was a, it was a really important moment for them because the simple option at that stage for any club, but in particular St Kilda, was to just fire the coach. I thought if we hadn't improved in the second half of 96 and then, you know, going into 97, well, then, you know, everyone could have sat down and said, well, this has been another fad that, you mm. know, hasn't worked. Mm. It's not gilding the lily, though, to say that you've had an ongoing and, and I think, pivotal role at places like Sydney... Geelong and Hawthorne, who have happened to have won 10 of the past 15 premierships. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's do you, reasonable. Do you, do you take uh, some... Um, uh, not credit, credit's not the word, but no. do you think you've contributed to that? I think um, the contribution is that you create a structure that the players can maximise... The players and coaches can maximise their performance. So um, I, I would always like to keep it in context that the players are the ones who deliver. Sure, sure. Yeah. The Bloods culture, I've been mm. intrigued by that. Most people outside of the Swans have been intrigued <coughs> by this term, Bloods culture. Mm. Did that start when you were involved with Sydney? Yeah, that started in uh, 2003. That was... Um, Paul Ruse had got me to come to Sydney. Um, we were away uh, at a camp at Coffs Harbour and we were going through the questions that I mentioned, you know, the, the, the review, if you like, that I'd mentioned earlier. So how are we perceived by the opposition? And at that stage, we'd lost, you know, some pretty significant senior players. Um, and so there was a real view that the Swans were probably going to be on the decline. Um, and we, we just talked about how we wanted to be. And in part of that conversation, um, one of the younger guys sort of said, you know, in the 40s and 50s, we were called the Bloods and, and we were hard and tough. And you could sort of sense that that was really resonating with the players. And that's what you want to do with a cultural statement is to have something they're going to buy into. If they don't buy into it, then you might as well hang mm -hmm. any sign on the wall. And so um, you could see that was emerging and... You know, they, they tipped into it significantly and became a really important part of, of the players' um, lifestyle. Interesting choice of <clears throat> captain for the Swans, I mm. think 2003. Yeah. Stewie Maxfield got the job. Mm. Among the contenders, um, Barry Hall, mm. Brett Kirk, mm. um, Mickey O'Loughlin. Mickey O'Loughlin, Adam Goods. Yeah. Now, how did you do that? You orchestrated that, didn't you? Not, 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 not the selection of Stewie, no. but you orchestrated the process. See, for me, the most important thing in shifting a culture is that you want a group of leaders. The selection of captain is not as relevant for me as give... If you can give us five or six really strong leaders, they'll shift people. So the, the, the captaincy came after the selection of the leadership group. And when we picked the leadership group, um, uh, we had the Bloods culture by then stated up on the board uh, and we talked about leaders being people who drove the culture, who owned it, who, who brought others with them. So we had context for leadership. And then I just gave the players a piece of paper each and with a pen and said, in order, just put down the five players that you trust most to lead us against our culture. And um, they filled out their forms and it was really quite funny because one of the younger players had <laughs> folded his over and then he folded it over again and then he folded it over again and brought it out to me and I said, oh, no, take a seat because we're going to read them out. And you could sense the mood in the room change quite dramatically then. But it was, that, it was those 
initial stages of showing players that we, ha we have to be held to account. And the important part for me is that it's not so much the voting, it's the, it's the following conversation. You know, so what have we noticed? You know, the thing we noticed was that Stuart Maxfield, it was him and daylight, you know, like really? he was a yeah. resounding because choice. Without being, uh, and I'm a Stuart Maxfield fan, yeah. I know his contribution was immense, mm. but he was probably the least, uh, in, in terms of public perception, mm. it was probably the, um, there were four or five blokes ahead of him in terms of their ability. But the other side is the character. Is he good for his word? And would he put the team's needs mm. in front of his own if he had to? And everyone knew that Stewie was selfless in that regard. So that's why the players saw him in that light. So how did the bigger names go when they saw that uh, they'd got precious few votes compared with Stewie? Yeah, well, there, look, there was a smattering. So it wasn't as though, you know, you had plenty, of, uh, quite a few names on the board, but it, it was true that, you, you know, uh, Barry Hall didn't um, sort of make... We, we just looked at who who have got the most votes and it ended up being a group of about five or six that sort of stood out and then there was a few underneath and Hawley was in that, um, uh, Adam Goods was there, you know, there was a few names of, of more senior players who didn't but I thought that was the healthy part, like Goodsy in particular just said, well if you didn't vote for me, why, you know, mm. and he wasn't angry or, but he wanted to lead and so... Um, they gave him some feedback and, and Adam, to his credit, is diligent in anything he does around making himself the best. Um, and so he, he worked hard. They said, you know, things like that he, he was a real pro in terms of his own preparation, but he probably didn't influence others to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so he started working with younger guys to make sure that their habits um, were, you know, as good as his. And as he started to exert that influence, then the players obviously in time picked him into the leadership group. S similar stories at two other clubs. Mm. At Geelong, Tommy Harley, mm. like Maxfield, not one of the elite players or no. perceived to be, mm. and Richie Vandenberg at Hawthorne. Mm. And yet they've all been seen to have been inspired selections. Now, I'm not giving you the entire credit for that. No, no. But I think I want to know the process because traditionally the best player was the captain. Yeah, I think that's the key. I, I, I think we sort of broadened... Uh, the understanding of what leadership really is. Leadership's about being able to perform. You can't get a, you know, if, if you can't play, <laughs> it's going to be hard to lead in that mm. sense. But if you're, if you're a good enough player, but you have that capacity to build relationships with your peers, to be able to influence them and to be able to challenge them, and that's, I reckon that's the tougher space. Like, that's where Harley, you know, Tom was terrific, Richie was very... And Stewie, like, the, the common ground there was that if they saw the standards that we'd set for our culture being compromised, they were fearless around having that conversation. Mm. I like the story, one of the stories in your two books about uh, a session at Geelong one night when the group, mm -hmm. suddenly feeling empowered, I suspect, yep. um, put it on... Gary Ablett, Matthew Scarlett and Cam Mooney. Mm. I mean, you don't get three bigger names than that at that footy club at the time. No, that's right. And, and uh, you know, we had one of our other facilitators working there. But that, that's, that's been well documented. And, and I think Geelong were um, interesting from the point of view that they were quite a mature, talented team who'd underperformed pretty dramatically in 2006. So I, I think they were ready. And, and so you know, there had to be some behavioural changes. And I, I, I know Matthew Scarlett better than probably the other two boys. Mm. And, and he, he certainly saw it as a shifting point for him where he was challenged about, you know, his ability to exert a, a broader influence to, to actually, uh, you know, work with some of the teammates that 
he didn't actually mix with, you know, to, mm. to, to roll his sleeves up and, and uh, get involved in, in the team more. Matty, I, I suspect, was sort of saying, well, I've got my job. I know Correct. how to do that. Mm. I'm not interested in anything else. Yeah, that's right. And I think... I can't speak for him, but I think that what, what happened was there was a bit of a... Um, I, I think the connection where the players were able to discuss what behaviours we've come to accept that have kept us below the standard mm. we know we're good enough for was pretty enlightening. And then for him to understand that he had a capacity to influence people pretty significantly and wasn't using it. Bomber was the coach at the time. Mm. The bomber I know reasonably well. I'm surprised. I would have thought he would be quite cynical about a group like yours coming into his footy club. Yeah, well, I met with... He and I met in 2005 um, and we agreed it wouldn't work. Um, you know, he felt probably that our model was a bit too confronting and so we just... We had a cup of coffee and just left it at that. And I think 2006, you know, to perform poorly, uh, to then have the review probably to bring, um, I think, Neil Balm coming in at that stage. Balmy was someone who rated what we did. I think there was a combination of all those factors then um, got them to come back and have a look at that decision. So, um, and, and over the period, um, you know, clearly if he didn't embrace it, it wouldn't have worked. So to some degree, the coach and the senior players have to, have to buy in. I'm interested, I'm intrigued by certainly the ablet who was around at 2006, probably the best player in the competition, mm. were they brave enough to say to Gaz, look, we don't think you're doing A, B, C and D? Mm. And they were. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, I wasn't, I wasn't the one in the room at the yeah. time, but what I'm led to believe was they challenged him around, um, you know, the, 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 his level of you know, real hard fitness to be able to run through the midfield and yep. a couple of other things. Yep. And I think they've been documented in, you know, a few of the players' books and things. But that's, that's the key. It's then your response... And if you respond, isn't that what we'd want? Like, I can't think that if you sat down after your premiership win that you'd be, you know, offended by the fact that you might have been given feedback to improve your performance. Mm. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, that bit doesn't make sense. Yeah. But, you know, if, I can, if I've got a way of getting better and, and my teammates, the, the ones I've got to go to play with, can give me some advice. I, I, just, I just don't what? understand why that wouldn't be meaningful. Even when you're the best player in the competition? That, that, even if you're the best player, because how much better mm. potentially could he be? There are some mavericks that you've encountered along the way. Mm. Let's go back to Hawthorne. Yeah. Uh, you, Vandenberg takes over as captain, mm. an inspired choice. Mm. The best and fairest in the year he took over as captain was a bloke called Peter Everett. Yep. Clearly in your book, mm. Everett was a disruptive force at Hawthorne. Yes, I, I think that that's probably uh, not too underkind a summary. Um, I'd worked with Peter at, at St Kilda first, then I, I wasn't at Hawthorne in the early days, but that, that was really, again, about his um, capacity to come into line with the behaviour and others that they'd, they'd um, uh, identified and wanted as part of their culture. And he, he wasn't, you know, in many ways he wasn't doing that. So I thought it was a watershed moment in some ways for them because... For Hawthorne. Yeah, because yeah. you had a talented... Like, remember we said you talk about competence and the character mm. side, you know, well, you can't argue with his competence because he won the best and fairest. Mm. But on the other side of that, what level of influence was he having in terms of driving this new culture that particularly um, Alastair Clarkson was, was keen to um, embrace? So... Um, you can do that, and, and those conversations would have been happening 
with the players on, an, on a more ongoing basis. And then at the end of the year, the players aren't the ones who finally decide what happens. Then that's why you need alignment at the club, because then the club decides, well, perhaps, you know, Peter might need a different home. He did need a different home and he went to one and it yeah. was Sydney yeah, where you were working. Yes, yeah. Yeah. When he came up, I think he was expecting you know, to be met at the airport by the hierarchy and things like that, but it was just Brett Kirk and Kirky took him off for a coffee and, and gave him a, a gentle reminder about the responsibility he had to either come into line with what we did or run the risk of playing, you know, reserve grade footy. Because Kirky was seen to lead the Bloods culture, wasn't he? After Stuart, yeah. yeah. This is for the Bloods! That's what I, I think was really important about the Swans or Hawks or you know, Geelong, is that what you do, if you're really strong around that cultural piece, you create a culture of leadership. So whilst they're different personalities, Brett Kirk had some similarities to Stuart Maxfield and Jared McVeigh had some similarities to Brett Kirk. You know, you create... Uh, some links, um, whereas in some organisations, when you when, when you don't count culture as being a really important part of achieving high performance, you you can sort of chop and change, and there's no apparent um, you know link between. So that that was important. How, how do players, high profile players, how do they cope when they're passed over? I'm, let's, let's go to Adelaide. Yeah. Now you had a role there. Mm -hmm. Brett Burton have some captaincy aspirations that weren't fulfilled? I'm not sure about captaincy, but he certainly had some aspirations and would have expected himself to be in the leadership group because prior to, I guess, Adelaide um, bringing our program in, um, they, they would have just gathered the more senior mm. players together and they were called the leadership group. And what they did with them, I'm not sure. But when we had that selection, um, yeah, Brett was left out and he was... Um, <laughs> he wasn't happy, um, and so he and I spoke after. Sorry, he was left out of the leadership uh, group. Leadership group, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, he, he didn't gather an, enough votes from his peers. And we just sat down and talked about that. With, like, you could see he was, he was um, annoyed, but he was also professional enough to be able to say, well, why? And, mm -hmm. and you could sense the anxiety. People saying, oh, well, you know... Um, I had you down as number six. You know, people were yep. almost wanting, not wanting to quite go there, but in the end they did. And they just said, look, you know, you, you probably just uh, are mates with the more the top end of town and that's what's brought you to the leadership group in the past. You're a mate of, you know, Rue and Goody and those ones. And we're looking for more from you now about... And again, it was in some ways perhaps a bit like the Maddie Scarlet one. What are you doing to bring those other blokes along? And ironically... He, and sadly, he, he ruptured his ACL and um, that year I thought he was outstanding in the sense that he went, he went back into that development group and he worked tirelessly with the younger players to help them and interestingly enough, without having played a game really, he was third selected in the leadership group the following mm. year. Okay. The other <coughs> side of the coin, mm -hmm. Glenn Archer, mm -hmm. um, you had confrontations with him at North? Uh, Glenn was at the end of his career when we, when we were asked to go and, uh, and do some work with Dean Laidley. And he'd said, look, you know, just leave me out of it all. And I don't think it was out of... I don't believe in any of it. I think it was just, you know, you guys can do it. And my concern was that you can't have... You can't quarantine influence, in my view. So you can't have Glenn Archer sitting over there just saying, I'll, I'll, I'll just drift off, mm. because that's not the way it works. So you had a leadership group without him in it. 
and, and almost, um, you know, if the leaders decided we needed to do something or we want to try and do this, then you had to almost defer to Arch anyway. Mm. And so that's what I was saying to him, you know, it, it's for the sake of the team, I, I think we would have been better off if he'd been in it. One of your favourite parables is, uh, I think, born out of camps. You take people mm. to territory they're not familiar with mm. and see how they cope. Mm. The camp you um, imposed upon the saints yeah. in the Grampians. Yeah, again, <coughs> me imposing, it's not quite right. We thought that was a really important part. Where you take people out together and you put them under a bit of duress, uh, you, you start to see things. People, people start to behave a little bit more like what they're like. And so um, when Nick Revolt and that group were very young, uh, the Saints had two so really good leaders. Justin Kosicki, Luke Ball, that group. Yeah, yep. Luke Ball, uh, Joey Montagna, Nick Del Sando. There was a whole group of them, very talented players, who, who went on a camp. And we split them into two teams and we had them competing to find markers and points, you know, throughout the Grampians. I remember um, walking with the group that had, I think, Nick Del Sando, Borley and... Lee Montagna and a couple of others, and uh, and they were lost. And I, I could, I was looking at the map, just following along, thinking, you know, we've walked a, a fair way off the track here. And they were ambling really slowly, and they stopped to have a drink, and they sat down, and they sort of turned to Borley and said, "Well, where are we?" And he, he went, "Well, I'm not leading." <laughs> and it was clear that none of them were. They'd just been shuffling through the bush. And so we sat down just in the dirt, and I said, "Okay, so what have you, what have you noticed?" And um, and they said, oh, well, we're lost. And I said, OK, so what, what can we do? And they said, oh, well, you could take us back. And I said, no, that won't happen. So what else? Uh, is there anything else you'd need? And Luke made a really... He mightn't remember it, but I, I clearly wrote it down. Uh, he said, um, a senior player wouldn't hurt. And I said, why would you say that? And he said, well, they wouldn't walk lost for two hours. Mm. And then I said, could you make that football analogy? And he said, yeah, what we've done today is like being belted in a football game and just doing the same thing. And I said, well, I reckon we could pack up and come home now. You know, you've got the, the so essence QED. of... QED. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and really, I guess that's what we had to sit down and talk about because those, those young fellas were brought in to St Kilda when, you know, there was a, a, a lack of... You know, there was some still some good senior players left, but the responsibility of leadership was going to fall pretty heavily to them and quickly, so we couldn't afford for them to just take time and, you know, get to 25. Like, the, the responsibility of leadership was going to fall to some of them at 21. Mm. Ray, what, what, I know you weren't involved with the Crows, with um, the, the notorious camp now. One thing we do know is that mm. the Richmond theme song was sung on the bus mm. after they'd lost the, uh, the grand final. Mm. Would you contemplate that strategy? No, not really. I, look, <laughs> I, I can't. I, again, what I try and do with any of the activities that I would put a group of players through, or staff, or corporates, is 
to say, how can that experience help them back in their real workplace? That's, that's the only conversion that I'm worried about. So when Luke Ball says in that circumstance, ah, this is like a game of football mm. and we've just been getting belted and not changed anything or not asked a question, I know then they've made the right connection. Were you involved with the Bulldogs when Acker was there? We were. Yeah. yeah not leading teams first. was. Yeah, yeah leading yeah. teams was. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, how did that unfold? Well, I think, again, it's, it's a part of the process that we've been through where um, players would have been given feedback. I know there's a, an account or two about that um, and I just saw it as a part, of, a part of the process we follow. He's clearly, he wasn't happy with it. Like, I think that's been well documented, but... Mm. Um, that that that'd be my take. Did he did he challenge you or anyone in your group? Well, I, th I think he's done that uh, reasonably publicly from mm. time to time. But I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with his account. So you know that's that's a bit different. But look, we would we would say that if you've developed a trademark or a, or a, a, a statement about how you want to be as a team and then you review players regularly against it. So it wasn't uniquely about Jason or anyone else. Mm. It is about all of the players tipping in to what they've agreed they want to be. But Jason didn't conform, did he? Well, that would have been part of the feedback, I imagine, mm. yeah. You're now down to two AFL clubs, correct? Uh, yes, we've got two we're working with at the moment. And two they are? are uh, Adelaide and yeah. uh, Brisbane, mm -hmm. where we're filling our time. Yeah. Would you be happy with the progress in Brisbane? Oh, Chris Fagans um, was always going to be someone who I thought Why? we'd work with. Why? Oh, uh, because he got what we did. You could see that at Hawthorne. He was a pivotal member of that group at Hawthorne. Um, he, he sees the value um, and appreciates the value of, of the player. Um, he, he has um, a real capacity to be able to build relationships with players and... and and allow them space to really um, take some responsibility. I, I think he's a good coach. Right. Have you ever been in a situation where you've you've gone to a coach and, and said, and probably may have crossed the line a little bit, and said to him, I don't think you're handling him the right way. I, I think what you're doing is counterproductive. Y yes. You have? Yes. Yeah, that, that would happen, not regularly, but it happens. If you... Have you got an example? At Fremantle, I would have... I would have said in a review, like um, gone to Ross and said, look, I thought, you know, we, we didn't handle that as well as we could have. Um, that was, you know, we had a pretty strong conversation about that. But then Ross would have digested that and said, yeah, you know, that's a fair cop. And then... So got... the scene is, it's a post-match? Hmm. No, 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 uh, the review and the week. The review, OK. Yeah. And Ross has as he can, has uh, savaged one of his players? I wouldn't have said savage, no. but I, it was a pretty strong review and I just said, you know, I, I just felt like it was worth exploring that how did we go there? Mm. And um, um, after, we, after we talked about it, he'd, he'd uh, felt that um, he could come back and address that with a couple of the players and we did and we moved on. Like okay. it's, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's not the... It's not a comfortable part of the role to be able to look and observe a review and say, I think we could have done that better. Mm. But if you're not going to do that, well, then you probably shouldn't be there. You either have or have had half a dozen ex-players mm. on your staff. Yep. Uh, Daniel Healy, Justin Peggett, Craig Bittescombe, Jimmy Plunkett, Trent Hotton. Yep. Now, were they handpicked because they'd been in the system? No, what, what had happened was that we'd started um, to run programs 
with AFL clubs where we were trying to make sure that players were pursuing things outside football and for those that weren't necessarily involved in education we actually ran community programs and those guys got involved and had real aptitude for working with groups and so as we grew uh, their careers ended and you know they they um were given jobs. I've got a much better appreciation now, Ray, of the culture mm -hmm. involved in sport, and I think it's enlightening to sort of um, hear what you've done at various places over a long period of time. So thanks for sharing your time. No worries. Thanks, Mike. This has been a Fox Sports production.